Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. ask you to feed us from your word and to devote ourselves to this word. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us ignorant. We thank you that you have given us men with feet of clay who are to preach this word to us, and we pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The occasion of my being able to be with you is that uh, Jordan Arndt and Andrew Van Engen and Parker Cornwall yesterday were uh, examined for ordination. It was a great day. It was sweet to see the fruit of uh, this church's work in the lives of these men. I don't know Parker as well as I know Andrew and Jordan. And certainly Andrew's father was one of the people on the council. And uh, seeing his father and knowing Mike Arndt, it was very sweet to see the fruit of many, many years of diapers and nursing and, you know, just the, the, the common stuff of life. And now you have shepherds, men who are going to give themselves to caring for the sheep. And so uh, it was a great day yesterday, and now it's my privilege to preach to you from the Word. But well done, those of you who have had a part in raising these men, training them. Now this morning I'm going to preach from Romans, the eighth chapter. At our church for quite a while now, we've been going through the book of Romans. We're actually in the middle of nine, and I wanted to preach to you what I've been preaching on most immediately, but I didn't quite think it was appropriate for a, a guest pastor to come into a church and preach on Potter and Clay and Jacob and Esau and love and hate. <laughs> I thought probably I should let your pastor be the one that gives you the most controversial and hated of all the verses of Scripture. But now you know where we have been as a church. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And uh, there are some aspects of that all through the book of Romans, and specifically we're this morning going to be in the previous chapter, in chapter 8. So let me read the Word of God, which is eternally true. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 35. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, if you know the book of Romans, you know it just goes on and it builds to a crescendo. But we're just taking this little segment and that is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Now, Romans 8 is focusing on all the blessings of the gospel that are given to those God has chosen for his adoption as the sons of God. It tells us that God knew, past tense, his own, and we learn that he knew them from before the foundation of the galaxies in the universe. It tells us that he predestined them, it uses the word, to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son would be the firstborn of many brothers. It tells us that he called them effectually, effectively to himself. So he knew them, he predestined them, he called them to himself. No one snatched them out of his hand. He tells us that he justified them, that he imputed to them the righteousness of his son. It tells us that he glorified them. So it's this list of from the beginning of time on. He keeps working, 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 and you have these doctrinal, technical words strung together in such a way that we realize that we're on a train, and the train's cars can't be separated. <laughs> and I, had, I don't have this in the manuscript, but it causes me to think of trains. So I worked for Chicago Northwestern for a while, and uh, if there's one thing you learn on the railroad is that you can't separate the cars of a train. Now you can, there is a coupler, and there is a brake line, and you can, you can pull them apart, but don't try to do it with your body. So the first thing they do if you're hired to work on a moving position is they took you out to West Chicago, and they, a, little, a little yard there, and they took a huge bag of sand and they put it in the coupler. And then it was a grade of just one or two percent, and they just slowly pushed the cars together without a locomotive, just started them rolling together. And they have these bags of sand in the coupler, you know, the big coupler at the end of the railroad car, right? And the cars come together like this, and they just couple. And it's like there's no sandbags in the couplers. Or another way of saying it is, the couplers are not bothered by the sandbags. Well, what's the purpose? The purpose is you don't ever want to get involved in separating the, the cars of a railroad because it'll just couple right through your body. It just goes, and it's firm. Well, this is the kind of intense connection that God has forged between his call, his predestination of his, his choosing us, right, his, and his glorification, okay? It's a timeline, and we don't have the choice of separating ourselves. The couplers have done their work, and God is the one who's in charge of the couplers. Just a few verses prior to what we read this morning, the Apostle Paul writes this, he asks the question, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, of course, it doesn't make any sense to assure a man that God is for him and that no one can oppose him if the man has no enemies. It's no comfort to us if we don't have enemies. These words of comfort 
make no sense outside the context of hostility and conflict. The man who is at peace with himself and the world needs no comfort. It's one of the things that is, you know, as you get older, you see things. And one of the things that so, so bothers me and I find myself beating my head against it, is the absence of any self-critical capacity in, in Christians, and especially pastors and leaders. You know, if you tell them that they failed, that they have sinned, that they're wrong, it's like the whole world caves in, you know? And so what we are, unfortunately today, and young people in social media the same way, we're all complacent, we're all fat, we're all wealthy, even at the end of a year of COVID, and we are at peace with ourselves. And so you have to understand that these tremendous promises here in what we call Romans 8, the chapter, chapter 8, these things are only precious to those who aren't at peace with themselves. I narrowed it down to two sermons, and I had to choose which one I was going to preach you. One was Romans 7, and one was Romans 8. Well, if you know Romans at all, there's a big debate about whether Romans 7, the second half, is written to Christians or to unbelievers. And the whole point of the second half of Romans 7 is the battle of the Christian life, the horror of the flesh that remains in us, you know? And so, this promise today, you know, a few verses earlier, he says, what then shall we say to thee? If God is for us, who is against us? It makes no sense if you're at peace with yourself. It makes no sense if you don't have enemies. In other words, complacency needs no comfort. It's one of the reasons you have to be very careful about giving morphine at the end of life. Yeah, you want painkillers, but, but at the same time, do you really want a drug-induced, addled, complacent state to be the context in which you say goodbye to your loved ones and in which your parents ask you to forgive them for the sins they've committed against you? Are you with me? Complacency is dangerous. And there is an awful lot about our lives that calls us to be complacent and smug and self-secure. And so complacency needs no comfort, and yet here the Apostle Paul in our text speaks to the church in Rome, and he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? And so I want to emphasize with you that the normal Christian life is needing comfort because we have enemies. Okay, the normal Christian life is needing comfort because we have enemies. This is the reason that, uh, that Matt prayed as he prayed. He went through the list of enemies in different contexts and the things that we have that are difficult in our lives, and that's good. That's good. That's the fruit of God at work in us. We'll come back to that. Now, I want to make a point here, which is 
Our text makes no sense if we don't have enemies. If God is for us, who's against us? It makes no sense if we don't have enemies. And yet, I also want to clearly state that our enemies are not enemies for our sake, but they are enemies of us for the sake of Jesus Christ. We are being conformed to his image by being joined to him in his sufferings, okay? Mary Lee and I stopped at the uh, shop, really a rat hole of a place, of a guy in our church that makes holsters, Andrew Henry. And uh, he had been hired to do a job with his, uh, with his uh, machines uh, where he took a big block of stainless steel about that thick about that big with various uh, drillings and, and attributes. But when he got done punching this out on the CNC machines, it had razor sharp edges, right? And so he has a, uh, uh, a stone tumbler. If you, some of you had a hobby, you know, you'd put nice stones in and it would polish them. Well, he has one about this big and about that tall and inside of it are a whole bunch of uh, angular pieces of plastic and a solution of uh, detergent and water and he showed us he opened up the lid and inside were all these cut out pieces of stainless steel and they were rolling in this solution of plastic pieces and detergent and everything and he pulled one out as it tumbled and he had us feel it and already the edges had been um, dulled so that you couldn't get cut on them and so we said, well, how does that happen with the plastic? And he said, well, the plastic has uh, some, some kind of, uh, what would you call it? What's the word? I, it, abrasive. So embedded in the plastic are abrasives that as it breaks down, it, it takes the edge. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is you and me becoming conformed to the image. We're being rolled in a tumbler. And it's called taking up the cross of Jesus. And it's suffering. And suffering is what conforms us to the image of Jesus. Okay? There is not a way to become like Jesus without suffering. And so if you want to be like Jesus, you're going to suffer. And that's the context for our text this morning. That's what it's been teaching us. Hey, we want to be like Jesus. All right, you want to be like Jesus? Take up your cross and follow him. I want to be like Jesus. Okay, you're going to suffer. And then it's like, because we're, you know, because we're decadent Americans, we're like, you know, we start whining. Why? 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 Why do I have to suffer? The normal Christian life should be peaceful. <laughs> you know, whatever you say, that's what I say. Various times in my life, suffering comes along, and I, you know, I've just gotten done preaching it, you know. And it takes me by surprise. You know, suffering? Oh, no. I, I had COVID a couple weeks ago, and before that I was sick for months, and I still don't feel good. And I just feel like there is nothing spiritual about it. It doesn't feel spiritual. It just feels like disgusting. You know, you don't get high-minded thoughts when you're when you got COVID, you know, you're just thinking, huh, you know, when's this going to end? 
But the Bible says we're being conformed to the image of his son through our suffering. Now, this text only makes sense, as I said, if we have enemies. And I want us to single out the three enemies who do attack God's people, okay? The first enemy is Satan. Satan is constantly bringing charges against God's people. An awful lot of the work of a pastor is pointing out to people, this is not your conscience, this is Satan lying, okay? He is the accuser of the brethren, don't ever forget this, of the cistern, okay? Scripture names him this, the accuser of the brethren. So number one enemy is Satan. Number two, the world. The world is always bringing charges against God's elect. The world hates the servants just as much as they hate the master, Jesus. And then third, the believer himself. He listens to the accusations of the evil one. He believes them, and the believer herself brings charges against herself, accuses herself, and condemns herself. Okay? I was watching the other day, I don't know where it was, but there was this momentary video. (laughs) Oh, it's awful. And the video was this woman, and she was smiling into the camera, and she had her arms up like this, and she was just stroking herself. And it was an ad for something. I don't know what it was, self-love. I don't know what it was an ad for. But she just sat there stroking herself. Now, we all do stroke ourselves, actually. But that this was out there in public and it would make you want to buy something or spend money to see this woman stroking herself. Eh, no. And so a lot of times what we do is we do accuse ourselves, but the solution to it is not stroking ourselves. You know what I'm saying? The solution to the insecurity that we experience in life is not self-esteem. It's not self-love, okay? And so the enemies are Satan, the world, and ourselves. These are the ones who are against us. But listen to the rejoinder of the Apostle Paul, and this again is just a few verses before our present test, If God is for us, who is against us? And you know he's not asking that as a question. If God's for us, who's against us? And you're supposed to answer, well, I don't know. No. The whole point of asking the question is that we all know the answer is, (laughs) if God's for us, ain't nobody against us. That's the point. If God is for us, who is against us? And then immediately the Apostle Paul goes on and he says this, if God is for us, who's against us? Then he says this, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So God's for us, and he didn't just give us his son, he's going to give us everything. God did not spare Jesus from death, even death on the cross, but from his great love for us, he gave us his son, and now he's going to give us everything. Then we move to our present text. This is what's been coming before. God's for us. He didn't spare us. And then we move to our text. 
who will bring a charge? So you see what you're dealing with is a succession of questions, all right? And so here comes another question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, he says, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Now, uh, those of you who work in law enforcement or in the judicial system, you immediately understand what's going on here. This is a courtroom scene. And so bring a charge, it's to indict, okay? To file charges. Justifies is to say not guilty, all right? Condemn is to find the person guilty. They've been indicted, and there are two possibilities. They can be found guilty or not guilty, all right? Courtroom scene. And the question the Apostle Paul is asking the believers there in the Church of Rome is, who is your accuser? Where is he and what is his name? And so again, the Apostle Paul is piling up questions here. The questions aren't really, though, inquisitive. He's not confused. He's not trying to find out what he doesn't know. But his questions are all the fabric, and they're woven together in protection of the sons and daughters of God. That means you. All these questions are being asked to protect you. He asked another question in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? Okay, here he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one that condemns? And of course, we know that the answer is no one is going to bring a charge, right? We all know this. No one's going to bring a charge against us, and no one's going to condemn us. But what we tend to do is we tend to put that way off somewhere in the future, you know, after death. And because it's after death and you don't want to think about death, you don't think about not having any charges brought. Because here in this life, it seems like we live in the mud of self-accusation, Satan's accusation, the world's accusation. Now, the question that we need to ask from our text this morning is, why is no one going to bring a charge against us? Do you have that on the screen or not? So it's the first verse. And you see the question. What's the answer? What's the answer? It's there in the text. Who will bring a charge against? And what does it say? Huh? What does it say? God's elect. You miss it, don't you? You get caught up in the question, but the answer is in the question. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? And the minute I point out that the answer to the question is God's elect, we're like, <laughs> that's not much of a comfort. You know, I don't know many people that walk around saying, I am God's elect. You know, your wife accuses you of sinning against her. 
Dear, do you know who you are talking to? I am God's elect. You know, it's not going to cut a lot of slack from your wife, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 honey. But meanwhile, what about this? <laughs> you know, I, I told you I'm God's elect. We don't really take comfort from the end of the question, do we? We're supposed to. The answer to the question is at the end of the question. The answer to the question, who will bring a charge, is no one. And the reason is because we are God's elect. Okay? And I want that to be very, very clear in your brain. You and I, who have faith in Jesus Christ, are described this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And at this point, we're all on board, right? Yeah, blessed be the Lord and Father, blessed and seen in the heavenlies, and you know, yeah, 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 I like the blessings. And so we're in the blessings, right? And then it says, just as he chose us in him. And we're all like, oh, please. And then he goes on and he says, before the foundation of the world. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And honestly, once again, we're ready to give up the blessings in the heavenly places. We're, we're ready to give up all the goodies at the beginning because we have such alienation from the predestination, the election, and the choice of God. Be honest. I don't care what church this is or what you say your doctrine is. We do not like the doctrine of God choosing us. Be honest. And why? Why don't we like the doctrine? Well, there are a whole host of reasons, and they're bound up with the issue that the immediate question is, well, what if I'm not elect? That's what we always think. I mean, I don't know. Has God chosen me? And so, you know, you think of the Apostle Paul writing this, who will bring a charge against God's elect? He's trying to comfort us. The whole goal is for him to comfort us. And then all of a sudden it gets to God's elect. We say, well, I don't know if I'm elect. Imagine all the Christians in Rome Getting to this point where it's all comfort, that's the point of it, you know, and then they say, well, <laughs> I don't know if I'm elect. How much patience do you think the Apostle Paul would have for that? I mean, honestly. Do you think the Apostle Paul didn't know that they would say, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if I'm elect? Okay, so this is one reason that we have problems being reassured and comforted by what is intended to give you comfort. But then there's another reason. And the other reason is we are so filled with our rights today. Do you, do you understand this? Most of the last year has been an extended declaration of the rights, the natural rights of the citizens. I mean, we are so full of ourselves. We have it right down to a science. I have a right to wear one mask, but not two. You know, I have a right to be three feet if a mask is on, 
to be six feet if a mask, if it's outside to not wear, and we've got it all parsed and we've read the internet and, and we're just so full of ourselves, you know? And we cultivate an awareness very specifically of what our rights are. Now, you know when I say rights, what I mean is rights, right? I'm just speaking as a southerner, okay? And listen, trust me, there is no natural right of man that isn't violated by God choosing him. Don't you worry about masks, because compared to the choice of God, masks ain't nothing. And we have an an inflated sense of self-determination. That's what it means to be American. No class, no aristocracy, no... It's all bootstraps for us. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and if I have to ask you which is more important, the Christian faith and scripture and bootstraps, every one of us is inclined to say bootstraps. That is what we really hold dear, <laughs> you know? I have a right to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, starting with choosing God. Come on. I mean, God chooses me? Why does he say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, if he chooses me? I mean, hypothetically, I have a choice if he says, come to me, you know? But he says he chooses me. And this ain't right, and it ain't right because it ain't logical and reasonable and rational, and it's not according to American political theory. <laughs> Come on. There's not an ounce of scripture we like, really. Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. I hope you won't be mad at me for what I'm saying. I had an elder and his wife who came, told us they were leaving our church a few weeks ago. And one of the things he said he was going to leave our church over was that I had preached this sermon where I had excoriated American political theory and the highly developed sense of our rights. And he was just so incensed and angry over COVID. And he felt that this whole extended thing was my attempt to say that we don't have tyrants and we shouldn't be angry at them and all the small businessmen should have been put out of business. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to make a political statement other than to point to you that those of you that have dear political commitments, those political commitments and ideologies are constantly infiltrating your reading of Scripture, and consequently, they're causing you not to see what God is saying, and consequently, you can't be comforted. Because it's no comfort, leave this up, please. It's no comfort for you to hear that nobody's going to bring a charge against you if you won't accept the fact that you are the elect of God. If you want to deny God's election and choice of you, you don't get the goodies. Do you understand that? You have to cop to God choosing you to find it a comfort that God has chosen you. 
Does this make sense? And then he adds, God is the one who justifies. Who is he that condemns? One of the things that we have to get it into, and I say our, intentionally, we have to get it into our thick heads, that God, one of his names, is what? Jealous. God, whose name is jealous. You know, we want to say it's an attribute, and that sort of removes it a little bit. One of God's attributes is. No. His name, the Bible says, is jealous. Does anybody... Does anybody have a cough drop or something, please? We keep them in the thingamabugger, but I didn't think I'd need one. You want to just throw it? That's perfect. Thank you, dear. I'm old enough I get to call you dear. Sweetie. I have daughters your age. It's one of the wonderful things about old age is that everyone is your daughter and your son, you know? Not David. (laughs) Although that's close, you know? All right. Now listen to me. Because from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, God elected you, From before the foundation of the earth, God selected you. From before the foundation of the earth, God chose you. From eternity past, God predestined you. In other words, we do not keep ourselves. God keeps us. We do not heal ourselves. God heals us. We do not defend ourselves. God defends us. We do not justify ourselves. God justifies us. We do not sanctify ourselves. God sanctifies us. We do not persevere ourselves. God perseveres us. And we will not glorify ourselves. God will glorify us. Remember, it's a train, and the couplers are done attached. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns? So the Christian is the man whom God has elected before the foundation of the earth and then fulfilled that choice by justifying him. What a precious gift the believer receives from his heavenly father, a gift that no one of us ever in the slightest way deserved. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Where then is, remember what it says? Where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. (laughs) 
By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. God's name is God. God's name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's name is jealous. He is jealous. Okay? And so you, my dear friend and my fellow believer, are this other that God will not share his glory with. God will not share his glory with any other, and that's you. God will not share his own glory with you by ceding to you the unhindered power and thus the honor and glory of choosing him. (laughs) No, rather he makes it very clear through his word, both his word incarnate and his word written, that he chose you. God hates the boasting of man. God will not share his glory, and that's why we are justified by his grace through the instrument of faith, which was not of ourselves, but always has been and always will be the gift of God. The law of faith excludes the boasting of that. Praise God. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Praise God. We are not justified by the sham good deeds of loudmouths on social media. What is social media but a parade of boasting of various moral attributes. You know? Critical race theory, keeping earth, earth keeping. I mean, it's just ad nauseum. You know, the whole law that they're trying to pass in Washington to shame Christians for shaming transsexuals, you know? It's just this constant bickering over who's really moral, right? Who's really good, you know? And we're not saved by being good, regardless of what social media says. But we're also not saved by sacraments. We're not saved by our liturgy, the Anglicans, right? We're not saved by making a choice, the Baptists. I'm sorry if you're Baptist, but our church is half back. Don't worry about it. We're not saved by Presbyterian confessions and knowing them, okay? And we're certainly not saved by a second blessing and speaking in tongues, We did not choose Jesus, Jesus chose us. This is what Jesus says in John 15. You, come on, you know it. You did what? You did not choose me. Can Jesus be more clear than this? This is the same God who says, I set before you life and death, now choose life. Remember Moses? This is the same Jesus who said, come to me. And when we come, he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he give it to you. This I command you that you love one another. Now, this is, this is a very important point in this text, okay? Remember how I said you have to have enemies to get any comfort from this text, right? Because it says, who will bring a charge? And so the whole context is you have enemies and people are charging you with various things, right? And, you know, if you will think about your life, most of you will know, and it is at its most intense in your family, okay? 
This is why Jesus said you have to hate your father and mother and you have to hate your wife. Because often the greatest enemies of our Christian faith are our loved ones. You do have enemies. Open your eyes. You have people putting pressure on you to not live by faith. You have people persecuting you in your own home and family for living by faith. I'm not telling you to go home and say, yeah, that's why you persecute me, hubby, you know, because I live by faith. You know, next time there's a battle, you know, you say, you're just jealous of me. I live by faith. No, I'm not trying to get you to do that, right? You all know that, right? That's a joke, right? It's a joke. But you do have enemies, and you try to cover it with a modesty panel. You try to hide it. You try not even to think about the fact that your older brother despises you because you obey your father and he refuses to. Are you with me? So you do have enemies. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that we go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Now think about this. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And I chose you so you would bear fruit. You think about the conflicts in your home, in your extended family, at work, and here in the church, your conflicts. And many of you can look at those conflicts and see that a lot of it is bound up with the fact that Jesus has chosen you and that you have been fruitful. All right? And so listen to what he says immediately after this. Yeah, I I chose you to bear fruit. My father will give you whatever you ask. In other words, you have a special relationship with Jesus Christ and his father. And then he says this. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Are you hated? Jesus is comforting you by saying, I chose you. I sent you to do fruit. My father's going to give you whatever. If you're hated, remember they hated me first. And then he says this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, the world hates you. Now, is that what it says? You know when I ask that, that it's not what it says. I just twisted scripture, but it sounded good, didn't it? You didn't have any objection when I read it. You know, here's how I read it. If you're of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, because of this, the world hates you. But I left out a statement. Do any of you know the statement I left out? Here's the statement I left out. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. (laughs) Because of this, the world hates you. Jesus says that it is specifically because he has chosen you that the world hates you. Okay? You look back up there, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The world hates people that God has chosen. 
Now listen, you know how I keep talking to you about the fact that you don't really want to claim God's choice in his election. You make false dichotomies and say that it's in conflict with God commanding you to come to him, to choose him, and you say it's not logical, and you say, you know, it doesn't feel right, okay? And I say, nope, you've got to accept it because it's your comfort. And you go, well, yeah, but I don't really need comfort. I already know why they're persecuting me. And predestination is not part of my medical kit, you know? I say, no, you got to do it. Do you realize that... Do you realize that if you refuse to take comfort from the election and choice of God... Do you realize that you will not sit in a no-man's land, you will not sit in a vacuum because nature abhors a vacuum? What you will actually do is you will attribute the hatred of the world and the resistance of the world to your own failure. Think about that. You want to hold on to your choice of God, self-determination, all the American political theory, that's fine. But when you're attacked and when you're hated and when you're persecuted, you will not take comfort from the election of God that he chose you, that you're his elect. And you will think, well, no, 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 no. I was, I was a jerk. I didn't say it charitably enough. <laughs> You know, I didn't get Campus Crusade training about how to witness. You know, I always, crew, they call it now. You know, I, I always found that whether it was evangelism, explosion, or crew, or Billy Graham, whatever it was, you needed to bring them in or follow their procedure because everything was carefully crafted in such a way that it would not elicit opposition and hatred. And if you got any opposition hatred to you being a bright shining light of Jesus, it was, you blew it. You blew it. And so you need to go back and get more training and learn how to do it right, okay? Do you realize that Jesus says the reason they hate you is because he has chosen you? I grieve over the absence of initiative and risk-taking in young men today. We have raised a generation of men who are incapable of lifting a finger if they think somebody might be offended. They're so fearful of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, of appearing the wrong way. And they have absolutely no awareness of God choosing them and therefore them being free to live out loud and to take risks. Because it's God who chose them. And it's God that's going to save people, not them. And if they get people angry, here's a thought, okay? Here's a thought. Maybe, just maybe, people being offended is how people come to God. You know, once we accept the fact that nobody can bring a charge against us because we are God's elect, it's unbelievably freeing. And listen, it doesn't mean that we lose our capacity to see our stupidity, our sins, our failures, our belligerence, our pushiness. No, we still see it all, 
But all of a sudden we see it was spiritualized and we recognize how God uses those very sins. I mean, you know, I often have to talk to pastors who feel like they failed and they don't know what to do about it or dads and mothers who feel the same. And it's like they have an expectation of perfection. It's like they were all raised by a homeschooling mom who taught them that they should play a violin and never be sharp or flat or have the vibrato off. And so they go through life like this. And now they're a pastor. Now they're a father. And where is perfection in being a father? You mothers, where's perfection in being a mother? I mean, think about it. From the time the baby comes out of the womb, you fail at breastfeeding. I know because my wife's a doula. You know, being a mother is completely hopeless. That's the nature of motherhood. And God is pleased by us saying, yeah, but I belong to him and I'm going to do what I think is right and he will take it and he will make it into something that glorifies him. And so I want you to see this. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I want you to see that your comfort is that you have been chosen by God. And once you get it into your thick head that God chose you, that you belong to him, he is going, from before the foundation, he is going to bring every car together, the justification, the sanctification, the glorification, there is nobody who is going to take you out of his hands. Then, guess what? The opposition of Satan to you, you know Satan's included that. Who? Not Satan. And then you think about the world. <laughs> what is the world to God? You know, this is my father's world. Okay? And then you think about yourself, and you think... Why have I believed all these lies? Why have I believed all these lies? Why have I had such large thoughts of myself and my power to harm myself and my witness? God's at work in me. It should be a great comfort to you that God has chosen you. You should not push it away. And you say, well, but I did make a decision for Jesus. And I said, I didn't say you didn't. And I always say to people that get all bollocked up about the issue of choice and election and Arminianism and all that stuff. And I always say to them, so, okay, you're an Arminian. Okay, okay. When you and I stand before God and he says, why should I allow you in my heaven? The difference between us is I'm a Calvinist or I'm, I believe in choice and you, that God chose and you believe that you chose, you know, and so we're going to stand before God. And because you're an Arminian, what you're going to say to God is, why should I allow you into heaven? I, I chose you. I mean, it's a joke. There's not one Christian on the face of the earth who would look at God and say, because I chose you. I don't care how Arminian you are. You'll say, because I was in the pit and you reached down and you grabbed, you done grabbed me and lifted me up and set my feet on a high rock. That's how every single Christian describes God giving them the gift of faith. You were hopeless, and God plucked you. 
And so I want all of you to take comfort from the election of God. I do not want you to get all messed up trying to come up with rational explanations about it. We don't know how it works. We are commanded to choose God, and we are told that we choose God because he chose us. And the choice we make is real, as long as you agree to define it according to how Scripture defines it, instead of according to your political, philosophical, critical hodgepodge. We Christians are God's elect. He chose us. He justified us. And this is the reason that no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth can ever bring a charge against us and can ever condemn us. I was listening uh, to some scripture on the way up. Don't worry. It's not my habit in driving, but by accident, okay? I was listening to scripture. And I heard that story that they argue about whether or not it should be in Scripture. Of the woman caught in adultery, you know the story? And I noticed something I had never noticed before, which is that she had been caught in adultery, you know? She, had, she was an adulteress, okay? Jesus wrote in the sand, right? Remember this. None of them condemned her, right? Then he wrote in the sand again, remember this. And then they all vanish, right? Because he says, you know, if if you don't have any sin, go ahead, throw the stone. Well, as it turns out, none of them feel confident to throw the stone, you know. (laughs) So none of them condemn me. He says, is anybody around? Anybody here to condemn me? No, sir, nobody here to condemn me. Then do you remember what happens? I'd never noticed this before. Jesus says two other things. Do you remember what they are? You remember one of them, I'm sure, which is what? Yeah, we all remember go and sin. Oh, no, she had to go and sin no more, you know. But But the blazing thing is that he says what? Neither do I condemn you. I mean, she completely did. You think about your adulteries. You think about your sexual abuse. You think about your theft. You think about your lies. You think about your, think about your sin. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And why? Because you have been chosen by him. And so now live in freedom. Take comfort from the fact that God has chosen you, okay? Kids, this is for you. You are very sinful. And so is your daddy, trust me. Take comfort from God choosing you, putting you in a Christian home, giving you the privilege of listening to preaching in Scripture. 
don't feel like you have to make yourself bad in order to be a Christian. You don't. Just love Jesus because he chose you. You're not lovable, trust me. But God in his mercy loves us and chooses us, okay? And you should rest in that. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. And we do rest in your choice. We do not claim to have been the determinant of our eternal destiny. Our Father, we pray that you will make us humble ourselves, that we will see our sin, and that when the accuser and the world and ourselves attacks us, Father, we pray that we will remember that we are chosen by you and that we will rest in your decision, your choice, your election, your predestination. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.